With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Log Talk Radio.
Hey, I want to welcome everybody to Reality. Well, actually, to Invisible Conservative Christians Unleashed. Just got in taking from taking care of a family emergency. We were out for four hours. So I want to thank everybody for being patient with, with me, but it was something that we needed to take care of. And the show was supposed to start at 7 o'clock, 6 central, but I had changed it to 6.30, and I had sent the message to my guest. And in the middle of me sending my message, my phone died, literally died in the middle of it. So, folks, we're going to get this started, and it's going to be a powerful interview tonight. So so just bear with us. We'll get this show rocking and rolling. You are listening to the Visible Conservative Christians Unleashed here on Blog Talk Radio and True Radio Presents. Once again, I want to welcome everybody to the Visible Conservative Christians Unleashed. And normally I would do my commentary, but I am going to go ahead and bring our guest on the line right away because he's been patiently waiting. And as they say in the film industry, time is money, but this gentleman has been so gracious to join us. So. Before I bring him on, let me just kind of give you a little bit of his background. He was born on March 7th, just had a birthday in North Carolina, a graduate of the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. Darn, I'm a Kansas Jayhawks fan. He began his career in theater, appearing in numerous off-Broadway productions. He only started gaining prominence, however, in the 1990s when he first um, cracked acting for film and television. Small roles in regional productions led to some degree of recognition in the 1991 film Fried Green Tomatoes, which I incidentally have saw the movie but didn't recognize him. But even more so, even... But even more so than that is what, in my opinion, he's known for now. And that is being him and his wife, Leslie, opened up their home to a phenomenal young man, which he's going to tell us all about. And it's something that's near and dear to my heart as being a product of a failed adoption One thing about Nick and Leslie, Cersei, is that they opened their home in unconditional love. So, folks, join me in welcoming a very good actor, but an even better man and father and husband to his wife, Leslie, and his son, Omar, Nick Searcy. Nick, welcome to the show, my friend. Once again, I apologize for uh, everything that happened. So thank you for joining <laughs> us right. today. 
Thanks for having me, Thomas. That's what we get paid for in Hollywood. We get paid to wait. The acting is for free. <laughs> I got you. But you know what they say, time is money. And normally right. I normally I would do my um you know, my monologue, but I'm gonna do that after the fact. But what I want you to share with me is well, share with me and the listeners is something that you had shared when we had talked on the phone maybe a couple months ago and in light of I don't know if you've heard in the news how there's a lot of stuff about white privilege. There's a, something called the White Privilege Conference. Basically, this whole narrative about how if you're a white male, you got where you are because of the privilege that you um, just somehow that because you're, you're white skin, it puts you at a higher status. But what I want you to share with the listeners is what you experienced when you went to adopt your, when you guys, you and Leslie adopted your child. If you could share that with the listeners. Oh, sure. Um, oh, sure. You know, this, um, you know this, this, this white privilege conference, I'm not sure you need a whole conference for that. I mean, it seems like the basic idea is if you're white, you should just feel bad all the time. I mean, that's, that's right. just a you're just a bad person because you're white. So, I mean, I don't know. That doesn't seem to resonate with me very well. I don't I don't get it and I don't care to. Um right. Well, when Leslie and I well, Leslie and I have a daughter too who's grown she's 24 now. She's a biological oh. child. And um and Chloe's doing very well. She she lives nearby and she's actually She's actually downstairs helping Omar with his algebra right now. <laughs> That's cool. But, but um, you know, uh, Leslie and I, I guess uh, 14 years ago, we um, decided that we were going to adopt a child. Um, and we decided that we wanted to adopt out of the foster care system because we just, you know, had done some reading about it and we had – Heard that there was a great need for parents to adopt. Parents it's, to adopt uh, it's hard, it's to, hard, get, hard uh, to get uh, to get foster children out of the system. You know, so we just went through the process of uh, you know getting certified to be foster parents, which is what you have to do so that you can. If you in North Carolina, where we were at the time, it's uh, called the Foster to Adopt program. You get certified, and then when you come across the child that you you want to take into your family the child that can then come and live with you while the adoption is going forward he can stay with you as a foster child until the adoption is complete so we decided we would do that and um we went through the process of just sort of <laughs> meeting some children and we had you know we we had some very you know we had this idea that we didn't want any child that was close in age to our daughter, you know, we didn't want to disrupt that sort of dynamic of her life that she was the oldest child. And um, we, we were kind of in the market or, you know, in, in looking for a boy, you know, just we, that was the idea that we had. We wanted to adopt a boy and a boy that was considerably younger than our daughter. <clears throat> and when we went through the uh, <clears throat> process, I mean, one of the questions that the uh, social workers asked you is, um, is race a factor in who you would consider adopting? 
And Leslie and I said, no, um, no, we don't care what race it is. And so we heard about this child that had been with a foster family for his whole, pretty much his whole life. He was 15 months old, and the foster family that he was with was having to move out of state, and so he couldn't go with them. But we were assured that this child, you know, the adopt- he wasn't cleared for adoption yet, but it was just a matter of time and all that stuff. And so we uh, went over to meet them, and uh, that's where we met Omar. And right. Omar, 15 months at the time. And pretty much the minute that I saw Omar, I felt something in my heart. It was most direct connection to God that I've ever felt. I just that, that this was my son. I just knew it the moment that I saw him for some reason and it was it was a it was a gift from God. And so we um we went through the process of, you know, saying that we wanted Omar and 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 you know, as we were working through the uh the the process with the social workers, we learned that it wasn't really as simple as they had made it sound about getting Omar out of that system. Right. Because what happens in the foster care system a lot of times is they'll say the plan for a child is for adoption, but then that plan can change if circumstances change. So after Omar had been with us for about a year and we were going, what's going on, the social workers began to tell us, um, well, his mother's doing a little bit better and we're thinking of changing the plan back to reunification and, you know, this kind of thing. And and we sort of got into this struggle that went on for for three years where basically we were saying to them, look, this is not like a puppy. You can't just, like, move him out of one house and put down a bowl of food and he's going to be okay. I mean... He thinks we're mom and dad now. He's, you know, this is going to be devastating if you move him away and, you know, keep him. And, and, you know, that that is what happens a lot of times to foster children in the system. They are, they're like yo-yos. They swing back and forth from one home to another. And it's, it's very hard. It's very damaging, you know. But anyway, during this process, um, you know, I, I did encounter quite a bit of resistance from some social workers in the system who did not like the idea of uh, Omar, who was African-American, a black child, being adopted by white parents. And they they really had a a problem with it. I mean, and it was that was really shocking to me. I mean, it, it was something that never occurred to me that, you know, when they ask you the question, does race matter to you in who you adopt, and you say no, it didn't occur to me that it might matter to them, to the social workers. Right, right. right. Oh. And let me let me stop you right there for a minute. Let me stop you right there for a minute because, as you probably know and as you've probably experienced over the years, that people find it hard to believe that when someone says, no, race doesn't matter, that maybe that is actually what they mean. Race doesn't matter. Because <laughs> like you said, when you went to adopt a child from the foster care system, 
you did not go with an intention of adopting a black baby. Because as you know, some sometimes people purpose in their heart, oh, I'm going to adopt a baby from Africa or, you know, or someplace, China or whatever. You and Leslie right. went with the express purpose of adopting a child, period. Right. And, uh, you know, and that that right there, that in and of itself shows the most selfless act of unconditional love, in my opinion, that anyone could ever show. And, um, you know, because I know I grew up, I came up in the system, and I can tell you for a fact, I was a business transaction. And and what that means is that they, the foster homes I was in, some of them, they got paid to keep us. And none of that money was ever used on us. That went in their pocket and, you know, and that sort of thing. So I know how the system works. But I have someone who's on hold who I think would like to ask you a question. I think this is someone I call my big sister, but I could be wrong. Okay. But that is that you? Hi, Thomas. Hi, Nick. This is Babette Holder. Um, Nick, I was on your Facebook as a conservative holder, and everything you have said so far, as far as not thinking how they ask you, does race matter, you wouldn't think that it would matter to them because years ago I wanted to foster a child. We had a one-year-old, my husband and I at the time, so a lady from social services came out to see, and I, I could tell right away she was appalled to find a mixed-race couple. And I mixed yeah. race myself. And, I mean, I could instantly tell. It's not like you want to project it because me growing up biracial myself, I never really thought about race. Race was taught to me years later in school. Right. Because, you know, if your father's white and your mother's black, every people are just people when you're little. After a while, though, you do become not hypersensitive, but you can start reading people on it. And they actually discourage us from going forward, and one of her points was, well, your child's so young, and then they'll get this new sister or brother, and then we might take them out to home, and more likely we will if their parent situation changes. It was horrible. The whole thing was horrible to try and go through. Yeah, it it, it is tragic, and, it, you know, it, it, it just seems like something that should not be, that it, it – that, I mean, I remember when Omar had, you know, Omar had been with us since he was, before he could talk, and so he learned to talk with us. And I remember talking to Omar one time, and we were in a swimming pool, and Omar says to me, Daddy, were you little once like me? And I said, yeah, buddy, I was a little bitty baby just like you, and someday I'll grow up, and, you know, you'll grow up, and you'll be as big as I am one of these days. And he said, Daddy, were you brown like me? No, but wow. <laughs> I thought about saying yes. I thought about saying yes. Yes, I was, and then I turned this color. But I didn't say that. But, you know, it's like it, it just shows you that the children, you know, they don't care what race their mom and dad are. They need somebody to take care of them, you know. And that's that's the real tragic thing about it is, like, 
somehow this race issue has gotten into the adults' heads in the in the foster right. care system, and it's preventing them from from letting the children get what they need. Exactly. Exactly. I know that. I know that firsthand. There was a family, her uh, foster mom named Carolyn Sutton, and she was out of. She lived in close to Abilene, Kansas. Well, my um, social worker advocate at the time, this back in 1991 or 92, had asked her. She said, um, "We're looking for a new foster home for Thomas. Would you?" Would you take them in? And she immediately said yes because she had met met me the previous year at a foster care conference. Kansas used to do yearly conferences for all the foster care kids, and it was where we got together, learned stuff, had fun. Well, I had met Carolyn years before. So she said yes. My social worker started making all the arrangements and everything, because my social worker, she was white and she was cool. And so come time to transfer the papers down to Abilene, Kansas, they they raised such a stink because I was black and she was white that they had to drop the uh, proceedings. They had to drop everything. And so... It's well, infuriating. It is, but I, mean, I raised so such sad. a thing. But let me tell you what happened, though, a few years later, because we raised such a stink about what they did. Carolyn ended up adopting three black children. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. in a way, you can say that my voice was one that was, um, you know, that kind of made a small difference. I wish yeah. on the other I had had the opportunity to experience, you know, kind of a sense of belonging because, you know, in my adult life, God is finally bringing me to a place where I'm able to feel like I'm a part of a family. But up until then, even in the latter part of my, uh, was the earlier part of my adult years, I never felt like I was a part of a foster uh, family at all. And, so yeah. this is why I admire and love what you and Leslie have done because essentially you have put your money where your mouth is. And and <laughs> if we had more people who really did what you guys do and many others like you who are who are showing unconditional love to children, it would our system wouldn't be as broken as it is, you know. And so Yeah. What what really when when you and Leslie made that decision to adopt, what what was it? What was the urge or the what was it about that that hit you guys that made you guys come to that decision? Besides love. Well, I mean, at the beginning it was we had been sort of trying to have another child biologically and it just wasn't working and we we tried a bunch of different methods and you know some of the we stopped short of doing the, the sort of fertility drug sort of thing as we just both didn't want to go that route and we were just talking one day and she said well you know we Leslie said why do you want to do- adopt another child 
And I said, well, I, I guess I just really always thought that I would have the experience of raising a son. I just always, for some reason, I had that idea in my head that that was going to happen to me. <laughs> and she said, well, why don't we just go adopt a son then? <laughs> and it was really kind of that simple. We just sort of talked about it and said, well, let's go get one. And then we, we just sort of had my daughter at that time, she was 10 or 11, and she was all for it. She had been bringing home little um, bookmarks from school that said, every child needs a home, call the Department of Social Services. <laughs> so, wow. you know, Leslie, Leslie had taken this bookmark that Chloe had brought home a couple of years ago, and we'd stuck it on the refrigerator, and when we decided that we wanted to do that, she just said, well, I've got the number right here. Let's call them. <laughs> That's so oh. funny. So, Thomas, Thomas, yes. Nick Stacey's, he Nick is also incredible because he gets a lot of backlash um, from the liberals and, and progressives I see on social media, and it's all based. A lot of times, I, it, it's it's so despicable, and it's all because of the race of his son. And right. I'll yeah. sometimes be on Twitter, and I'm like, how does that man stay sane? I mean, because it's just nuts, but he handles it. Nick, I have to give it to you. You handle it well. <laughs> I mean, well, you do really handle it well, because I, I would be just, you know, I, I just can't explain it when I see him going through. And if he even says the word boy instead of son, which I find utterly ridiculous, I call my daughters girls. They will find any little nuance to attack Nick, I tell you. But Nick and Thomas, Thomas, you know I love you. You're like my little brother. I just wanted to call in because I'm like, Nick is on with Thomas. This is going to be an incredible show. But I just wanted to point that out to you too, Thomas, because I know you don't see a lot of it, but I'm on there a lot of times when Nick is not busy doing his work and he loves his son, so they all know whom Omar is. Right. Well, thanks so much, Bevett. I I just have to laugh at these people. I I have to laugh at these people, and I like making fun of them. I think I I watched too much wrestling when I was a kid, and I love the bad guy, and I don't mind it (laughs) if they hate me. I've just always admired the bad guy wrestlers, and so I'm willing to get in there and fight with them because I think it's fun. Right. Yeah, but well, you keep me... it clean. The FCC would have kicked me off the Internet. So, well, thank you, gentlemen, <laughs> for letting me call in. I appreciate it. <laughs> sure. Good to meet you. Don't you. To, you, don't, you don't have to go anywhere. Just hang on hang on the line, and I'll leave your leave your mic open. Okay. You, you know how we do it here. But I know how you work. Thank you. Yep, you're welcome. Speaking of which, that's a perfect segue into what I'm about to ask you. I want to, because I absolutely loved your response to Melissa Harris Perry when she commented, when they were making fun of Governor Romney's um, uh, adopted black grandbaby. And you, yeah. and, and I'm going to paraphrase your quote from Twitter because I don't have the exact quote, but you had a, you had a picture of you and Omar and y'all's face was really close in the camera and you said, you talking about me, Melissa Harris Perry? It was funny. I was right. cracking up. Speak about that when you saw that. What what was your initial reaction to that utter garbage that they put out there? 
Well, you know, it, it, the, the saddest thing about it really was that it didn't surprise me. That is really, I mean, I encountered so much of that when we were going through the adoption process that I know that the, that's how liberals think. They, they really, uh, you know, I call them liberals, and that's, that's really a mistake. They're not liberals. They're progressives. Right. Right. And that's how they think. They, 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 they want the races to be permanently divided so that they can pit them one against the other. And right. basically, I really, I really think it comes down to that they're afraid that if Omar gets raised by two white parents, they're afraid he won't grow up to be a Democrat. <laughs> I really think it's very politically motivated, right. and I think that that's why they, they are so kind of just viscerally knee-jerk reaction against the idea of interracial adoptions. Right, right, right. And, and it, you know, it, it's sad. It, it really it, it it bothered me so much because here's a, here's a woman with a you know a semi-national show. I mean, you can't really call MSNBC a national channel, um, right. but you know she she's got a mouthpiece and she could do so much good. And here they are smirking at the fact that, uh, that somebody in the Romney family gave this child a home. Who cares what color the child is? The child needed a home, and they were there. Right, exactly, and that's the that's the whole point. That's the whole point, and um, and what I'm getting at because you know these elite progressive elitist progressives, you know, for some reason they think that somehow they get to make all the rules, they get to define what is said and what is not said, and you know. For you know, for most part, I have tried to um, you know I've tried to hold my tongue. I've tried to you know I've tried to be you know I've tried to be cool because I give people the benefit of the doubt. But yeah. you know, as the name of my show signifies, the visible conservative Christians unleashed. People are going to hear my voice and see. I know how, and but Matt can tell you. I know how to effectively communicate without cussing someone out. I don't. In fact, right. when I'm mad, right. I rarely cuss. So, well, that's good. You're, well, you're, you're, know, you're doing it the right way. I'm doing it the wrong way. You do it the right way. No, Thomas, Nick, you and I, because I keep reminding Thomas, I am a holder, just because I'm the one on the right. <laughs> Doesn't mean right. I didn't have some progressive ways. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Right, and so, you know, the thing of it is, though, but here, here's the thing, and this is what has really, really irked me. You know, you have our, you know, you have our, what do you call them, establishment leaders, individuals, whatever they want to call themselves today, but they are telling, right. telling us if you're a Christian conservative or a conservative, Catholic conservative, whatever, a conservative of faith, shut up, sit on the sidelines so we can win some elections. Wait a minute, though. We have been shutting up, sitting on the sidelines, and you still haven't won any elections. So um, I don't think the problem is us. What, what would you say to that, Nick? No, I don't think the problem is us. I, I, think, that, I think that we have to start standing up to the left's tactics, because what the left doesn't want to argue 
they want to shame you into shutting up. And right. that's, that's what they try to do. That's what this whole white privilege conference is about. It's like you just need to be ashamed of yourself because you're white, and anything you say is shaded by this thing called white privilege because somebody in your family years and years ago who died long before you were born was a racist, and you are, you are still one just because you're white too. And the whole thing of like, Every, you know, the, everything they do, you know, the, the thing about uh, if you disagree with Obama, you're a racist, Eric Holder calling us a nation of cowards, all this is to just make everybody who disagrees with them ashamed to even say anything. And what we have to start doing is standing up to these people and laughing at them and ridiculing them and saying, no, we have a point of view. Our point of view is more valid than yours, and you don't get to shut us up just because – of of what you think about what color I am. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's a whole good point. So I'm a I'ma ask you a very controversial question. And only controversial because a lot hold on just a second. Sorry about that. Uh, we have a lot have a lot of activities going on in the background but um, here, here's my question for you, and it is controversial because of what, I, what I'm going to ask you. You and your wife, Leslie, you guys, you, you two have shown yourself to be extraordinary Americans. Why are white conservatives afraid to stand up to the labeling of progressives as always calling them racist? first question, and the second question is, why can't we all as conservatives work together? Why do we have to be labeled and categorized into black conservatives and white conservatives and all that garbage? Yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying. I mean, the, the, it's a complicated issue. I mean, I think that like I said, the, the reason that they don't want to argue with us, they don't want to argue about the effectiveness of their policies because their policies don't work. So what they have to do is categorize us. And they also, leftists are committed to committing one group of Americans against another. So anything, anything you can do to divide us up and say, like, say to one group, we're going to protect you from that group of people over there because those people over there hate you. Or they say to women, we're going to protect you from those crazy Christians over there because they want to take away your birth control. Or, you know, right. any number of ways that they divide us up, you know, that that's what they're going to do. And we as conservatives have to start uh, telling the truth about uh, conservatism, which is that there is no color involved. Conservatism is a philosophy that is based on individual achievement, not group achievement. You know, right. we're not out there going, you know, this group of Americans needs to band together to go against that group of Americans. What conservatives are about is that all Americans have access to, to achievement in this country, and no matter what color they are, and we need to, to find ways of encouraging that rather than finding ways of, of making people depend on the government for everything that they get. Right. 
And, you know, that is an interesting point in that Hollywood uses the fact that when we as conservatives talk about individual responsibilities and stuff like that, they think, oh, we're only talking about doing things for ourselves and not helping other people. That's not what we're talking about. But yet we as conservatives let that go unchallenged. I have a question for you from the um, chat room. Um, Mary wants to know, what percentage of Hollywood do you think is conservative? <laughs> um, that's, that's a tough question. I, I would say, you know, there's no way of really knowing because a lot of conservatives in Hollywood keep their mouths shut. Uh, there's a lot of people that I know that would no, would never say it out loud, even though they might vote a certain they might vote conservative. They wouldn't tell their friends. Right. I would have it somewhere in the uh, 25 to 30%. And that's, that's, wow. that's, that's pretty high. That's pretty high. But I'm saying wow. of, of that 25 to 30%, probably only about 5% of them would dare tell anybody. <laughs> yep. And I can name two of them besides <laughs> there's you, there's Stacy Dash. Yeah. Yeah. So – those those the those two and I know that um Patricia Patricia Heaton just had some some issue going on. The left came against her for something. I think because do you ex- know exactly what that was about? Because well, she, she, she released pro life she, she released a movie. She she produced a movie that was just released okay. about a week, week and a half ago, and it was called uh, Mom's Night Out. Mom's Night Out. And it was a movie that contained some Christianity in it. I mean, some so uh, not the whole movie was not about Christianity, but there was a you know just sort of a normal little side story that that had to do with the you know them being them being and so and the critics of course slammed it and said this was a boring Christian movie preaching and all this stuff and you know they. They just want to shut it down. They don't want this. Uh, don't want this to creep into the mainstream. They have to keep Christians on the uh, on the outside. They have to demonize Christians in order to keep leftist agenda going. And that's sad to say, it's, it's uh, that's what goes on in Hollywood a lot. And I'm not so sure that it's always a conspiracy. You know that sometimes just people going along to get along. You know they're just keeping their mouth shut and uh, and taking some work and, you know, keeping their head down. So how have you um, been able to be outspoken and still be able to work? Because I thought if you're conservative in Hollywood, they blacklist you, make sure you don't ever work again or have whatever it is that the terms they use. How How is it that you you know how is it that you manage to not deal with the riffraff, or is it you well, just don't deal with the riffraff? I don't Go know. Ahead. I don't know the answer to that. You know, Thomas, because I, I don't know how many times that it has worked against me. I'm sure that it there have been a few times when somebody said I don't want to work with that guy because he's a conservative, but they they wouldn't call me up or call my agent up and say that. They would just not hire me. 
Um, I think in some ways I've been blessed by not being a very big star. <laughs> you know, it's like if, if it was a situation where I was a really, really big star and a conservative, they would probably have more of a problem with me than, you know, I'm just a character actor. I'm the guy, the friend of the guy or whatever. And so they're not going to hang their marketing campaign on me. So, you know, I don't think it matters to them as much what my political beliefs are as it would, you know, if it was a guy like Tom Hanks or Leonardo DiCaprio. And I think that that's, that's one reason why so many of those guys are just kind of knee-jerk liberal because they probably wouldn't work as much if they weren't. And see, that that is one thing that really – really, really irritates me about Hollywood is that they think they have an open license to discriminate because of one's political views. I would say this, and I'm going to throw this out there, and if a conservative Hollywood actor is listening in the background and they want to take this idea and run with it, by all means, go ahead. But somebody needs to file a class action lawsuit for discrimination based on political um, beliefs against um, the major studios in Hollywood. Scare them enough to make them think twice because the only way that you get anything done is when you hit someone in a pocketbook. You know, we talk about, as conservatives, we talk about all the time, well, we got to educate. Well, we've been trying to educate. We've been trying to um, tell people the truth of a lot of things, and yet it seems to fall on deaf ears. So now maybe it's time to start taking some of their money from them. <laughs> what do you well, think? you know, Thomas, I think that it really is changing in the sense that the the way that movies are being distributed now and being made now, I think it is taking a lot of the power away from that. There are movies right. like God is Dead, which produced independently, came out very well. You know, and we just raised, I don't know if you've heard about the campaign for the Gosnell movie that I was kind of part of. We raised $2.2 million to make a movie about Kermit Gosnell, the abortion doctor in Philadelphia. And the mainstream Hollywood would never make that movie, but we're proving more and more that you don't need them to make your movie. You can make your movie, you can find your audience, and they're not the gatekeepers that they used to be. And I think that's right. how you take them. That's how you, right. that's how you change things, is that you just stop relying on them, stop trying to win them over, and just do it yourself. Just go around hey. Amen. And you know what? That that is very that's very 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 um, so true. That's that's so true. And you know that's kind of along the lines of some pro- well a project that uh, myself and a friend of mine, Craig Bergman, who's a filmmaker, um, we're taking on the same issue of abortion either uh, as well. But we're going we're going a little bit more extreme. And I can share this with people because, you know, folks will know about it just because of the controversy. And Babette knows what I'm about to say. Celeste, who's listening in, knows this. Um, Mary knows this. And I'm sure you know what I'm about to say. But 
very few people are afraid to say this because of abortion in the black community. The black community is essentially extinct in America. We're not even right. we're not even reproducing ourselves any longer. A lot of people don't know that. And so a film project that and this is going to big screen. It's going to be an independent screen uh movie. We're we're going after the one of American of this American population whose voice remains unheard, and that is the post-abortive black woman who has been systematically affected by abortion more than any other demographic in this nation. Millions upon millions of black women suffer in silence because they're not being told that there's healing it through Jesus Christ. They're not being offered the help. They're being made to feel condemned, and they're being, you know, all kind of other things that's being said to them. And so that's the project that we are, you know, that we're taking on. And so, yeah. you know, so with Kermit Gosnell, and he's the worst kind. He was a, he was a black abortionist. A lot of people don't yeah. know that. The mainstream media didn't tell you that. <laughs> no, but he was. And you know, and, there's so many aspects to his story that are so disturbing. One of them is which that he had separate waiting rooms for black and white. Yep. Yes. You know, I mean, it was it's it's so sordid and so racist and so terrible at, on so many levels. And you know, I get in discussions sometimes with people on, on Twitter, and one of the common common themes that a lot of sort of pro-abortion people say is that, you know, you, you, you only want to take care of these babies before they're born. After they're born and starving to death, you don't want to take care of them. And I, of course, say, no, I adopted a child out of the foster care system. If more people would do that, we wouldn't have this problem. And number two, the fact of the matter is, these children, you know, if, if somebody had looked on paper at my son and said they might be better off not being born, he's going to be born into poverty, it's going to be a hard time for him, he'd be better off not being born. I mean, you know, that decision is made every day by millions right. of people. And that is right. sick. I mean, when, you, when I look at my son and I, and I think of him in that context and what a beautiful, radiant boy he is and how alive he is. It just goes to show you, you can't predict what a baby's going to grow up to be. You don't have that power. And to sit there and say this one shouldn't be born because he's going to go hungry, it's so, so wrong. Right, right. And that, that, is, that is essentially the whole point. Because I've asked people, okay, so you're saying that it's like when they make that statement, they're, they're making that statement as an absolute fact that that child automatically will grow up hungry, poor, and in poverty. And all I have to all I have to do is point to one person to say uh, to prove otherwise, and that's Dr. Ben Carson. Right. Dr. Ben right. Carson, single mom, three two other siblings. She raised them, working two jobs. And what what did he do? Oh, he just went on to become the top 
neonatal neurosurgeon in the entire world. He was the first first doctor to ever separate Siamese twins joined at the brain. I mean, stuff like wow. that. I mean, yeah. we if we want to celebrate the history of our nation and celebrate real black history, let's celebrate the people who accomplished things. You know, kind of going back to this thing about white privilege, they talk about white privilege, and I'm I'm saying, I'm thinking to myself, so you're going to dishonor the tens of thousands, maybe twenties of thousands of white men and white women who died so that black slaves could have freedom. But no one ever right. talks about that. Oh, yeah. you're going to get your own kind if you take note for white people. No, right is right, wrong is wrong. Why dishonor right. the memory of an entire people, an entire group of people who laid down their lives because you harbor racist views because you can't forgive and let go of the past. And that's what it boils down to, all this race baiting, all this, you know, all this garbage about, you know, everything is racist, finding racism and everything. It's garbage. Yeah. Yeah, and somebody, some some old man said something racist, so let's make that the headline for two weeks. You know, it, it just, it, it really, it, it is a strategy. It is a strategy meant to divide us. We are all one race. We just happen to be different colors. And it, right. the, the left are trying to divide us by skin color. And right. we can't let them. We can't let them because it will destroy us. Exactly. And, and you know, that... That's the that's the whole point of everything, Nick, and that's that's why I've always I've always been an admirer of individuals, whether it was a black family adopting a a, a non black child, which I've seen that quite a lot as well. And and it right. just goes to show when people are willing to show unconditional love regardless of the boundaries that the left may try to set. Yeah. That that is what that's what still shows the greatness of the American spirit. I don't you know, I don't care about anything else. I live you know, I live vicariously through um the fact that, you know, Omar has a awesome family, you know. His mom well, and dad, sister, you guys love him. And so that brings a smile to my face. I'm not one of those kids who get jealous and say, I wish that was me. No, he's he's blessed. So I celebrate with him because he's blessed, you know. And I look forward, if we can get it arranged, I look forward to getting to meet you in September at the at the event, you know. God's oh, that would be great! Yeah, we're definitely going to try to 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 get to bring Omar. It's uh, you know, depending on school and that kind of thing. But no, it's right. uh, he's a wonderful boy. He's he's such a such a great kid, such a great sense of humor, and such a such a wonderful gift of happiness. He's just he's just a happy kid. And, that's uh, cool. That's, that's, that's a great thing. That is so cool. I mean, <laughs> it's. Man, I'm telling you, it's awesome to see 
I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a contrast a conservative adoption versus a liberal adoption. You have <laughs> yeah. certain, you have certain individuals. They're married, Mr. Pitt and Mrs. Yo, Miss Jolie. They they went and adopted two beautiful children. But yet it seems like in one way or the other, you know, they're celebrated. Their kids are celebrated. But yet right. you adopt, you and Leslie, you guys adopt your son. Oh, you horrible person. You adopted a black child. What? What <laughs> is that? White guilt and all that stupid stuff. I mean, enough is enough. (laughs) You adopted him because I like cultural genocide. Yeah. Have you heard that term, cultural genocide? That's what they call it. Like I'm like by adopting Omar, we're stamping out his heritage or something. Well, last time I looked, you saved a life. You didn't abort a life. So, (laughs) you want to talk about cultural genocide? Let's. Let's um people always throw out the number seventeen million black babies. I think they're off by about I would say that number is probably closer to twenty something million black babies. Because if you think right. about it, in nineteen seventy, black people were twenty percent of this population projected by twenty twelve to be fifty percent of this population. In other words, 150 million black people by 2012, that was the census projections. But right now, right now, at this very moment, you have our population is 12.6%. Now, Nick, explain to me, how do you go from 20% to 12.6% in less than, what is it? 30 or 40 years, wouldn't it take all all the black-on-black black violent crime and disease, all that stuff, that would not be enough to move that kind of forces, to move those percentages down like that. Wouldn't it take an a event on a yeah. inocidal level to do something like that? Wouldn't you say? It seems that way. Yeah, I mean, it seems that way. It seems like it would take a like an a strategy to cause it. Yeah. Exactly. And that's and that's my whole point. You would be hated by Miss Margaret Sanger because you kinda of, you kinda of thumbed your nose up at her plan when you and Leslie adopted Omar. Because <laughs> according to yeah. her, we black people we're dis we're um what what'd she say? She called us weeds, and we're right. we're we're not um, worthy of being around. Just all kinds of stuff. I just laughed when I read the quote, and I yeah. love it when individuals like you open your hearts and say, "You know what? I don't give a rip about what society says. We want to adopt yeah. a child. Yeah. This is where our heart was led. So if you have a problem, too bad because." We don't. That's and, right. And so, I mean, I and more people need to be that way. More, more people need to be that way. You know, it, there's a, 
I think I read the statistic the other day. There's 300,000 children in foster care right now, and 100,000 of them are available for adoption. 100,000 yeah. of them are legally available to be adopted. And wow. there's not... There's no reason why that can't happen. You know, this kid, I don't know if you remember the story of Davion Only, that kid that went, went into a church in Florida uh, yes. about six, yes. seven months month ago and asked oh, to be adopted. Yes. yes. Yeah. That that kid, you know, we, we inquired about him. We, uh, we called and we asked about him. And then there was a story about a month ago that said that he hadn't been adopted yet. So we called again, you know, and... Because we had read that there had been 10,000 people that had written to say, I'll adopt that child. But the foster care system wears you down. And it, it, it's so um, demoralizing trying to get these kids out of the system. You know, you just have to keep trying. And you, you have to fight them all the way to the end to get the kid, right. out, of the, the kid out of there. But, uh, you know, this is uh, it's an ongoing problem. And the more people that would look into to trying to get these kids out of the system and give them a home, it would impact society in, in a way we cannot imagine. Right. Let me ask you this. What can, what can we do to, um, what can we do to, like, help you and Leslie possibly get him? Because I think that would be, that would be awesome. But it seems well, you know like, what, the, you know what, ahead. Thomas. The last time we talked to the people down there, he was on track. He was on track to be adopted, okay. and okay. he's been. He's and that it seemed to be headed in the right direction. But you know what, Leslie and I looked at each other and went, "Well, you know, he's probably not the only kid in his situation." And and Omar said, "Yeah, we need another black person in the family." <laughs> <laughs> That's no more for you. Yeah, and so, you know, we, we have sort of, Leslie and I have been sort of tentatively, you know, taking steps to see if maybe we can find another child that we could uh, give a home to. Because the thing about Davion that was so heartbreaking is that, you know, he's he's 15 years old. And these kids that are 14 and 15 finally uh, legally allowed to be adopted in three years I mean, you know this better than anyone, Thomas. They're going to age out of the system. Right. They're, they're just going to become adults, and they won't have a family. You know? And so that's one right. of the things that Leslie and I were moved by. It's like, well, if we can find someone that we can adopt and we can give a home to, then um, why don't we do that? Right. So we're we're looking into that. We're 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 you know, taking steps toward that. That is so, that is so awesome. That is so awesome. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if a lot more people um, put their money where their mouth is, like you do, I mean, the, the system would be taken care of. Um, Babette told me to tell you that it was it was awesome to talk to you, and that she appre you know that she appreciates you, you know, and 
She's just glad to get to speak to you in person. And I also, one of my dear friends who's another Blog Talk Radio uh, host here, she's, she's listening in as well. And uh, yeah. Yeah. she asked me to put out a request to you if um, if I could pass on your information so that she can contact you to invite you on her show. It's a phenomenal show. I've co-hosted with her and she she's great people. Us conservatives, as you know, we you know we love each other, and it's not just lip service. When you know we care about each other, and we you know we like to get the message out. So if if I might have your permission to share pass that on to her, and so she can contact you about being on her that, show. That'd be just fine. That'd be just fine, Tom. All righty. Um, Nick, one last thing before you go. Um, tell us about fried green tomatoes. <laughs> what, fried green tomatoes? Yeah. Well, that was kind of my first big break. Um, that I'd auditioned. I'd done some small roles in movies before that. But um, when I when I went in to audition for this smaller part, the director of the movie, John Evnett, must have thought I looked mean and stupid because he wanted me to read for the bad guy. And so, uh, so I, he handed me this big part, and I ended up reading for it a number of times. He kept calling me back and giving me another chance, and I, I wound up getting the part. And pretty much that, that movie, because it did so well, put me on the map at least enough to come to Hollywood and sort of get a career started. So that was that was kind of if I had a big break in my life, besides my wife and my children, it would be fried green tomatoes. That's cool. Um, yeah. Are you okay? This is this is kind of a total off the wall question, and I'm asking you this for and I'll and I'll contact you off the air and tell you why I'm asking you this. But are you as an actor? Are you required to be a part of the? Uh, Screen Actors Guild or something like that, the union? Well, yeah, it's complicated. You you are to a certain degree, but I'm not a member of it because uh, there's a thing called financial core where you can opt out of being a member of the union. You still pay your fees, um, but you're not a full member, and your fees are reduced by a little bit. It basically takes away the amount of money that the Screen Actors Guild uses for political contributions. I take that oh. money away from them uh, so that they can't use my money to help Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you still, you know, it's called a fee-paying non-member. I mean, basically you function as if you are a member in terms of being employed, but you're not, you're not paying those uh, extra little money to uh, support political causes. Right. But that's so, something that you have to – you probably would have to join the union first and then then ask to become a fee-paying non-member. You can't just go straight to that. You know, you have to join the union first and then quit. <laughs> well, so if someone wanted to um, – if someone wanted to ask you to be part of a film project as a non union member, that would be much easier, right, instead of having to go through the politics of the Screen Actors Guild. 
That's right. Yeah, I mean, it, there is that. I am I am allowed to do non-union work. I don't. I, it doesn't come up very often, but you know, I, I am legally I'm allowed to do that. Okay. Well, hold that thought. That's why. That's why I asked. And I know that I know that you got to run, but Nick, yeah. I I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate you and Leslie for what you've done for Omar. I know I've not met you guys in person yet, but it doesn't it doesn't take meeting someone in person to know when someone is doing something that is unconditional love, how God, you know, when he sent Jesus Christ to die for us, unconditional love. And that's what you, Leslie, have and in Chloe have exhibited to Omar. And I thank you so much for joining me. And I'm going to be contacting you off the air about some things. It's actually the film project I was telling you about. So I'll be contacting you you about that. God bless you, my friend. God bless you, you too. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. All right. I'll see you soon. Yes, sir. You have a good day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. 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 Wow. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. That was quite a phenomenal interview. And uh, I really don't know what to say, but, you know, a phenomenal man, a phenomenal guy. And I am going to get our juices to flow in by playing a phenomenal song by a favorite person of ours. And I'll be right back after the song is over.
welcome back to the Visible Conservative Christians Unleashed here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, the Visible One himself. And that was our phenomenal interview with Nick Searcy, conservative Hollywood actors, um, one of the stars of the hit FX show Justified, an adopted an adopt, father of a phenomenal adopted son, husband to a phenomenal wife, Leslie, you know, just great people, great people. Um, now, in the last few minutes, I'm going to get to my commentary. Let's see what's on Fox News. And probably going to end the show a few minutes early. But, um, hmm, let's see. Wow. (laughs) Illinois is spending $1,166 per bird to bring in prairie chickens. That's interesting. Yeah. The cash-strapped Illinois government has found a new use for its fleet of aircraft, flying birds into Illinois. I kid you not. State aircraft are flying to Kansas and transporting prairie chickens back to the land of Lincoln. At a time, state lawmakers are looking at raising the state income tax. Illinois state employees have been hiking across Kansas, trapping these birds. Talk about foul fiscal deeds. State pilots have flown between Illinois and Kansas not once, not twice, but 14 times. This year, taking prairie chickens to downstate Jasper and Marion counties. Illinois is the prairie state, and prairie chickens are an endangered species here. So we thought it would be a good idea to bring them back, said Scott Simpson, site manager for Prairie Ridge State Natural Area in Newton, Illinois. Wow. What can we say? That's crazy. But yet the state of Illinois and a lot of other states who waste taxpayer dollars want to raise taxes while paying $1,166 per bird to fly them Back to Illinois. Somebody got issues. Seriously. Somebody got some serious prairie chicken issues. But I digress. It is what it is. We say what we say. What else? Senate Minority Leader discusses VA scandal with Melling Kate. Megan Kelly. Uh, let's see. GOP bites back on lunch rules. House GOP bill would roll back school lunch rules championed by First Lady. House Republicans are taking on school nutritional standards. 
championed by First Lady Michelle Obama proposing to let schools opt out of healthier lunch and breakfast programs if they're losing money. A GOP spending bill for agriculture and food programs, which included the provisions, were released Monday. The House Appropriations Committee said in a release that the waiver language is in response to requests from schools. The new standards touted by the First Lady has been phased in over the last two school years with more changes coming in 2014. The rules set fat, calorie, sugar, and sodium limits on food in the lunchroom and beyond. The First Lady was holding a call to rally supporters of the Healthier Food Rules Monday as a House subcommittee is expected to consider the bill on Tuesday. While many schools have had success putting the rules in place, others have said the rules are too restrictive and costly. The proposed provisions would allow schools to apply for waivers if they had a net loss on school food programs for six months in a row. The School Nutrition Association, which represents school nutrition directors and companies who sell food to schools, said Monday that schools need more room to make their own decisions. School meal programs need more flexibility to plan menus that increase student consumption of healthy choices while limiting waste, said Leah Schmidt, president of the organization. The School Nutrition Association says that almost half of school meal programs reported declines in revenue in the 2012-2013 school year, and 90% said food costs were up. Nutrition advocates and other supporters of the rule say it will take some time for schools to adjust, and the House proposal is overly broad. Margot Wooten of the Center for Science and the Public Interest says the House Republicans are using a hacksaw rather than a scalpel to try to solve problems some schools are having. Wooten argues that there may be other factors in play, such as enrollment or food costs if a lunch program is losing money. It's a shame that the House Republicans are taking a step backward in allowing schools to serve more unhealthy food for to children, she said. The House bill would provide money for agriculture department programs and food and drug administration programs. A Senate subcommittee was also scheduled to mark up its version of the school food and farm spending bill Tuesday, but the panel has not yet released its language. So let me let me put this as blunt as I can. To all you elitist snob progressives, you go eat your pathetic sorry excuse for a food known as caviar and other garbage and yet You want to tell somebody what they can and can't eat? Stop trying to control people if you don't want to be controlled. It's that simple. Get over yourself. No one died and made you God. Period. It's that simple. You're not God, so stop trying to play 
God with people's lives and with people's food. And that's the end of that discussion. That's all I'm going to say about that. Well, Harry Reid's an idiot. We all know. Senator Harry Reid has some serious issues, folks. What are we going to do about that? I don't know. He has some serious issues. That's all we need to know. But at the end of the day, what it boils down to is this. We have to. We have to. We have to be diligent and vigilant in the things that we do and the things that we say. We have to stand for our beliefs. We have to stand strong, stand firm, because at the end of the day, the Lord Jesus Christ has our back. And know that. Believe that. That is real. That is real. So, having said that, remember, we're not politically correct. We're just correct politically. And we always come down on the right side of the issues. Not to mention, politics doesn't define my faith in Jesus Christ. But my faith in Jesus Christ defines my politics. Man, you have been listening to the Visible Conservative Christians Unleashed in Annie. Send me a message on Facebook, and I will get the contact information to you. Looking for the song. Can you hear us now? This is Krista Branch. Can you hear us now?
With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.